Now, I want to want you to take a thought of, of what a small group is and throw it away for a bit. Now, some of these people may do something traditional like you, and I, I give them permission to do whatever they want. But we're really looking for doing groups in a different way. Most small groups are built with a, a structure, a certain structure to them, like worship, teaching, and ministry time. Nothing wrong with that at all. And they're usually designed to have around 12 or 14 people. Nothing wrong with that at all. They usually get bigger. But as you know, as they get bigger, the intimacy begins to go when that happens. Well, we're looking for groups of five to seven people. Matter of fact, if you hit eight, we're going to ask that people would split those groups and make two groups out of it. And I've done those a few, a few of those recently. I've done groups, small groups for probably 35 years. I love small groups. And I love the other way of doing it as well. But I think God wants to do something. I, want, I think he wants ministry birthed out of relationship. Now, these type of small groups are the type of small groups you've always thought, well, I'd like to bring that neighbor or that friend to church, but, you know, I don't know if they're going to go for all this weird stuff. <laughs> no? Uh, or you bring them to a small group, and I don't know. You know, they're going to sit and pull out a Bible, and that's going to turn them off, possibly. This relational group has peer pressure working for it. See? Because what happens is that people, our, our core group is based upon a relationship, and since they're in relationships, and since their first love is God, what do you think they're going to be talking about? God. And it's going to come naturally because what's God speaking to them that day or what's happening with them day, it's going to be what's on the agenda that day. So you can bring somebody to a group like that, and they be, and you're talking about God, and they become interested because all of a sudden you've got peer pressure. There's four or five of you and one of them. You know, peer pressure is a good thing when it goes the right direction. It's a bad thing when it goes the wrong direction. The enemy knows that, so he uses it the wrong direction all the time. We want to try it the other way. So our primary purpose, first of all, purpose with these groups, are to develop, develop relationship. You know, John Wimber used to always say, people come for a lot of reasons, they stay for one. And that's relationship. And I believe that's true. I believe people stay because they meet people that accept them and like them. I've always been amazed with small groups, some people that I would normally not think I would be hanging with, were people I really end up enjoying. You know, difference is always a really good thing. I don't know if any of you are married. If you are, God usually has a sense of humor and puts together with someone that's really different than you. It works out very good. You know, and, and, and God likes to do different things. And so what we want to do is have a small group that is uh, uh, based upon relationship, that has an overflow that comes from uh, uh, what God's doing rather than we have in mind. I like doing that here on Sundays, too. It's hard, though, you know, because if I do things just this, a certain way, you know, the uh, way I, I really feel things going, a lot of times people go, well, it's not church because it's not what I'm used to. And that's one of the things we're going to deal with with small groups. This is not a small group because it's not doing the way I used to. We aren't doing anything. We aren't getting anything done. We aren't accomplishing anything. We're just going out for lunch or dinner. Yeah, you are. Developing relationship. And the light talk about God that ends up to being heavy talk and very usually ends up with prayer sooner or later in there is a natural flow of God. I believe this is something that would really help us learn. You know, we start with prayer in the morning for a particular reason. The prayer in the morning is, is the first fruit to God, just like we do the tithe. First thing given to God. It starts our day off with them. We're saying to God, you are the most important in the world to me. But there's another little reason with it, too, because just my... So have you ever met with somebody first thing in the morning, and next thing you know, well, hey, I'm going so-and-so. You want to come along with me? 
That also happens, too. If you start off your day first thing in the morning with the Lord, very often what happens is you end up bringing him with you, at least a little bit during the day. And if you press on that, you'll a little bit more. Same type of thing that goes in with this. We start off a relationship and we carry people forward. It's a different dynamic than we've seen before, and we like to try things that are different. I've done, like I say, a couple different ones, and they've been, they've been really fun. They've been successful. But I have to deal with that thing. We aren't accomplishing something. How many of you, when you approach God, end up feeling that way sometimes if you just sit there and wait on God? You said that thing is like we're oriented for one thing. It's accomplishing, getting things done, working off a checklist. Accomplishing so much during the day or we're not happy. But see, with God, it's the same way. He likes relationship with us, you know. And so it's not about accomplishing things. It's being around with him. It's being in relationship with him. And the same with one another. And I believe the things that sometimes that we don't even look at, that we don't even think of as uh, a prayer, is the greatest prayer of all. See, prayer, just as relationship, is based on being willing to spend time together with someone. You know, when you really love someone, you like to go for a walk for them. You don't have to say a lot of words to them. You can just be around in their presence. God feels the same way about you. And I think it's a natural overflow with people you deal with. Just hanging out together. And these groups may be something that you might find out, hey, I actually like doing this more than just once a week or once every other week. You might want to go, hey, I'm, I'm going to a movie this weekend and do it together with them. You'll find you're doing stuff together with them. you find that, hey, you know, maybe we ought to go out and do a, a little outreach sometime. You know, maybe let's, let's go down to the bookstore and let's just talk about God a little bit and see who draws near do that. These, these natural groups are a different type of group, and I, I really would encourage you to get involved with them. All you need is about three people together. Three to seven really works well. Over that, I found that they break down. When I try eight or nine, it just becomes uncomfortable. It doesn't work as well. You don't get the intimacy. You don't have the relationship. You don't all get to talk. When you have a small group, you all get to talk. You know. And there's something else about it. Have you ever been in groups where... Someone always kind of wants to be the number one thing in that group that isn't the leader. All seen that. Well, if there's only three or four of you, they don't desire doing that. <laughs> so you don't have to mess with that problem. They don't, there's no competition there because there's not anybody a big leader. There's no positional thing. It's just a matter of a very simple thing. Hey, we're hanging out. So please do try that. I don't know if I should try a word or not. Message? Think so? Okay. Let's go fast then. How many of you were here last week and heard me talk about gates? Okay, a few of you. And uh, I would really encourage you to go to our website, breakpointbridge.com, look up podcasts. The one I did last week and the one the Wednesday before on gates are really, really interesting. Since I've looked at that, things have really become alive on seeing gates in the Bible in a different way. I've seen them in places I've never saw them before. You know, it's like the picture of Jesus somebody has and, you know, and you can't see it. And then somebody points it out there and you can't see how you didn't see it. Well, that's how I see about what gates, you know, it's, it's a very open up a lot of different things. And so I'm going to talk about that today. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to pick up where I actually left off quite a few Sundays ago. And that's uh, and I, I couldn't seem to get to it. And I'm going to get to it this week. And it's starting with Romans 1, 5. 
So can anybody have a Bible and read? My wife says, you sound foolish when you read, because I'm always tripping over it. Yeah, you do. She said it in a nicer way. Ask somebody else to read. <laughs> what well, is, you know, I have this thing that, that I'll skip lines, and so I'm always checking myself, and it ends up real choppy when I read. So go ahead. A one through five. Five, one through five. Romans one. Yeah. One through five. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God in power, with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. I am for a second. It's not looking familiar. It's not what I was looking for. Actually, I don't have a regular Bible in here. I'll see if I have my other one. Yeah. Where does it say, therefore, since we have been justified through faith? Five. Oh. Didn't I, didn't I five said? Oh, it's, yeah, it's Roman fives, one through five. Did I not say that? There it is. Reverse dyslexic. That's what I want. I was wondering, where is that at? There. <laughs> it sounds familiar. It's not what I was expecting. <laughs> okay, five, one through five. Therefore, having been justified go. by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Okay, great. All right. A couple things I want to draw your attention to that I've actually talked about, and that is that the cross provides two things. One it talks about there is a justification. We're justified once and for all. The scriptures are very clear that Christ died for us and we're justified from our First sin to our last sin. It's a process. He says you're clean. Because why? Because it's no longer, another place in Scripture tells us, it's no longer us that live, but we live through Christ. It's no longer our record that stands. It's his record that stands. That is the basic part of the gospel. So we've been justified there. And it says by sanctified. So I want to begin to look at this in, in a, a little bit different way. I'm going to look at the cross. Remember I said about a gate is, is, is two ways. One up and one lateral. So first of all, justified once for all. We're justified with God. Sanctification is a process that goes on over and over. And it's, it's a process of God cleaning us up. Why? He loves us clean. He has to have a relationship with him. But what is the reason why he does? That's one I want you to just kind of put that in your mind. Sanctification is a process that where God begins to change you to make you more like him. He justified you once. So it's not a matter of your record. And so when you sin, because you will, he forgives you. And the main point of this saying is when you sin, God forgives you. Because he's justified you once for all. But he wants to clean up your act. He wants you to be different. He wants you to change. He wants you to look like him. Why? Quite a few reasons. But one of the main ones is so people can see him. When they look at you, he wants them to see him, not you. 
You know, well, when they were singing that up to me, I just had a, I was having a great visions. And one of the visions I had is God give me that crown that she sang about. You know, and the first time it ever hit me this way, I want that crown. I want that crown so I can lay it down before him. You know, it never really hit me that way before. And I always saw the elders and they threw the crowns down before him, and that was a neat thing. Uh, yeah, I got that. I got the theology behind that. But I never really got that. I want God to bring me to that place to crown me with the uh, honor that he wants to crown me so I can lay it down before him. Because that's what the call is. That's the sanctification process that he wants to do in us. That we could be representations of him. That we could be filled with his presence. That we could, he could crown us and use us for his glory. That we would lay it down before him because of our honor and love for him. Because that's the process of sanctification in our heart, isn't it? It's become, we become different. We no longer live for ourselves. We live to live for God rather than ourselves. We are changed in such a way that we are a total different being and we bring his glory. Another thing I saw in there was, uh, uh, as they're singing over me, was my heart just like a white ball of fire that God just burning in me things and burning out things. That, again, is that sanctification process that God loves to do that. Now, how is that sanctification process does? Rejoicing in our suffering. Because suffering produces perseverance. How does that go? You know, how is that? Suffering, perseverance. Well, I'm going to give you a kind of everyday example. If you have a very, very strong wind that comes against you all the time, you learn to press into it, don't you? If you have to get from A to B. So you begin to press through. It develops the perseverance of pushing through. You do it long enough, you get stronger physically. Well, in this way, you get stronger spiritually. You get stronger and be able to push, push through. So that perseverance causes the ability to push through things. And what is the consequence of pushing through? Well, in the spiritual realm, that perseverance, the consequences is spiritual muscles or character. Character is something that's built from perseverance, the scripture says. Matter of fact, it said about Jesus that at the cross, he says he t- he made him perfect, which means to be made complete, made grown full, fullness through suffering, it says. Suffering trains and changes us and causes us to be like our father through his son. So perseverance and perseverance character. That's that changed person that doesn't give up and is, 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 it develops a pressing through mentality. This is especially important to this church. We are called a gatekeeping church, and as a gatekeeping church, we have a lot of stuff come against us. A lot of stuff. And we will, it will not stop coming against us. It's not going to get to be better that way. You're going to get to be stronger. Now, right now, that doesn't matter so much. A lot of you want to just get out of the heat. But you see... With the heat comes the character, and character comes the glory, and the glory comes the honor from God. If you really are serious, and we're really serious and want to be in who we claim we want to be, we should be happy we're at a place that has the hottest heat around. And we will have a hot. It'll get more. So what? So what? Because what God can do in us is so much greater than the pain that we have to go through to get it. Because that's what it says, consider it pure joy. It says it more than once in the Bible, too, different places. Consider it pure joy. Pure joy. It's, it's great that we have this problem, <laughs> that we have perseverance through it, that we have character from it. 
Yeah, there it is, baby. And it gets, character gets what? Hope. Why? Why does character build, give hope? Does anybody know? Yeah. What is it? What is hope then? I mean, why? why what's the hope? How does the character give you hope? Thought. That's true. Yeah, for more, for more, you know, trials against you. Is that the part? Well, no. Well, how does character give you hope? If care, huh? There you go. That's the main thing. You just take a look at the desert, and in the desert they had a lot of stuff going against them, didn't they? You know, and over and over and over and over, we kind of look at and make fun of those guys. Oh, geez, they're always complaining. But they had a lot to complain about. They're in the desert. You like the desert? I don't. I like it here. You know, I like water. I like I like shade. I don't like the heat. I like food when I want to eat it, right, in my refrigerator. They didn't have all that stuff all the time. But they found through that character-building process that God was faithful. And that faithful thing gives you hope because you know that God won't disappoint you. What was, what was Israel required to do all the time? Huh? What? Yeah, that, that, that's where they're going, but what were they required to do all the time? Recall the promises. Recall what the promises and recall what God did. They had to recall that God said to do this and remember how, what he did in the past. You were required to do those same things. Otherwise, you will not make it. You're required to remember what God told you he's going to do with your life. The promises he gave, and they may not have been real loud, they may have been real loud. Recall the promises and do what? You're required the next thing to do is, is to remember what he's done in your past. Because when you remember the times that he came through when things were really tight, and he does like to make things tight. Because that is that pressure that gives the perseverance, that gives the character, and the character that gives the trust, the hope. And, of course, who is the real hope? Christ. Christ is the hope. Hope of glory. Remember that one? Which I don't usually quote scriptures directly because, and you know why I do that. I don't like to quote them. I like to change the words. I like to put them in my own words. I like you guys to do it, too, because that meant you processed it. You didn't repeat something like a tape recorder. You processed what God said. You got an idea what he's saying. So that's where it got us to hope. Okay. Can you read six nine through uh, six? Romans five six through nine. I'll try to move fast. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from Oops, wrath through him. Hang on, that went past nine. Okay, put that in English. Six. Put that in. Put that in everyday language. Who can do that? Okay. Yeah. 
There it is. While we were scumbags, God died for us. That's exactly it. Why we were scumbags, why we were worth anything in, in God's sight. Because one sin's enough for God's death. So why we were no good. And what did he call that? The right time? He called that the right time. When we stunk, he died for us. To demonstrate his love for us. Right? And that is the demonstration. You know, that it's just like a child when you do things nice, it's one thing, but when they're really a brat, it's a different thing. When we were a brat, Christ died for us. He demonstrated his love Why were we yet sinners. Lock that in your mind. Because here we're going, we're, most of us struggle very often. It's because we end up sinning in our lives. And we let, when sin comes in our life, it lets us send us for a loop. It causes us to go to a place that we run away from God because we sin. We go, oh no, I don't want to get near God because this is bad. And then we got to go through this long cycle. Then we come back to God. That cycle is designed by Satan. It's not designed by God. God had a very quick way. Because why were we yet sinners? When we really stunk, he died for us. When he had no reason to like us, he loved us. So then let's read the next scripture, what it says. 9-11. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son... Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we, now, we have now received the reconciliation. Okay. So here's the contrast. When we stunk, God died for us. How much more that, he, that we're friends of his, that he poured his blood out for us, would he forgive us? So, what does that mean? Hmm? What does that mean? What does that mean when you mess up and sin and the enemy comes at you? It means he has no power that God loved you enough to die for when you were a scoundrel. And it says very clearly right here, that now as you've been made right with him, even more he wants to forgive you. Most of us think that, well, we, we got cleaned up once and, then, you know, it's, it, I don't want to come to him again. That's not theology from the kingdom. That's theology from the pit of hell. That's where that's from. So every time you think that, you know who you're thinking? You're thinking the enemy's thoughts. Because that's really what it does. He loves that to come at you. The truth of it is, is very clear. That when we were sinners who died for us, now that we're sanctified by him and made holy by him, he's even forgive us more quickly. He's willing to die for us before. There's nothing to forget the sins. Now, I'll show, we'll show later what the theology is behind it, because I think we need to know, know theology and need to understand how things work and how God works a certain way and why you're totally free. And that's one of the things I really felt I wanted to do. Uh, now, I'm going to come back. I keep the blood in mind, would you? Okay, go 12, 14. 5, 12 through 14. 
Oh, we'll, we'll have to do it fast. Because I'm in the middle of the thought. 12 through what? 14. 14. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Okay. What does that sound like to you guys? Okay, I'm going to pull you to gatekeeping principles right now. Who is the first gatekeeper? Adam. Okay? Now look at this. Here Adam is, and what did he do? What did the enemy trick him to do? Disobey him, right? But what else? What did that do? It defiled him. It defiled him. The first gatekeeper was defiled. And what's the scripture say? Sin entered the world. Even though we didn't sin the same way as Adam did with the commandment, don't eat from that tree, we still had sin. Principle. There was a gate that went to heaven. It got defiled. He was, he, that gatekeeper got fired. Okay? Let's put it in today's language. I can get fired, you can get fired. He got fired, and what happens when you get fired? You get kicked off the job site. That's what happened to him. If you want to put it in real everyday language, Adam blew it, got fired, got removed from the place, and because of it, Earth was defiled, and sin ruled. Why? Because of a defilement issue. And what does defiling do? What does God can't mix with what? Sin. Right. Okay. So, what does the enemy do, and what has he done here, Santa Monica, as well as he did in the garden? He caused that gate, portal, whatever, to become defiled. And in defiling that, God's presence no longer came to that thing. Because we know that Adam didn't walk with the Father anymore, did he? He used to walk with him every day. But he no longer walked with him. Did he have a relationship with him? I think so. Very much. But there was a difference. There was a change. Because sin had entered the world. He was the first gatekeeper and he failed, got fired, and was removed from his job. That's why it says that Adam was a pattern of one to come. Because who's the other gatekeeper we're going to talk about is Jesus. Okay? Now, I would normally go on here. I'm going to kind of stop here and just say this. How was that defilement taken care of? That gate, the defilement, that defiled the world. It's the main portal gate was taking Jesus' blood and sanctification. So just as that gatekeeping principle that uh, Timothy talked about, uh, and I mentioned, is that what we allow in our own life allows in our area of influence. Adam's area of influence was the world. He was the gatekeeper. There are many gatekeepers in this world today, different degrees and different levels. Every one of us is a gatekeeper. We're a gatekeeper for our own life, as well as some of us are gatekeeper for larger realms. And as this church, we have a responsibility as a larger realm. 
What we allow in our life allows in there. What, what, what Jesus did was shed his blood and sanctify that gate. You and I. That what? What's the natural thing that happens when there's, when there is, uh, uh, when, when something's sanctified like it used to be before the fall? What's the natural thing? First of all, God shows up, right? Okay. Now, what is also with the showing up? What do we know about God? God is a good God, right? Very important principle to get. <laughs> Number one principle to get. And we see Adam had every single thing. God gave him dominion over the whole earth. He named all the animals and everything else. He had full dominion. That means God gave him everything. That means he owned everything. He got tricked out of what he had. He was foolish. He got tricked out of it. We are all tricked out of it often ourselves. But he owned everything. Just as you own everything because we're sons of God. But we get tricked out of it as well. The blood that covered, that paid the price, removed the stench. And what's the natural thing when the stench is gone? The kingdom. The kingdom. The presence of God. And his good comes on us. So, once it's removed, and we're going to have communion here in a second, uh, and we're going we're gonna to break up in groups of uh, three or four people to do that. And five? Groups of five, excuse me. Uh, of, of doing that. And what we're going to do is receive the elements, the blood and his broken body. And the reason that we're called to do that is that symbolism of being sprinkled with his blood or covered with his blood or cleansed with his blood, that we won't be defiled anymore because we aren't. And when we're not defiled anymore, his goodness comes on us and his blessing comes through us. And that's what he, because his heart is to do one thing, is to bless you. That's what he wants to do. More than anything in the world, he wants you in relationship with him and bless him. When relationship means you one with him, that, that he sanctified you so he can bless you. So that, and we're going to pick up next week on this, and you can read the, you know, the rest of that chapter out. And we're going to talk about how it worked with Jesus, how we get defiled, and how we stay sanctified.